0: Welcome to the Beyond 28 Podcast, presented by Chase, a show designed to keep the conversation around Black history going all year long. We're going to continue to celebrate the excellence, the joy, and the love that is Black culture and the Black community, each month, a new episode will explore the influence and impact black people not only have made historically, but also continue to make each and every day. I'm your host, Mark J. Spears, so kick back and relax as we get right into it. This month on Beyond 28th, We are using this Black History Month to look at those who are creating a new legacy of Black excellence in the Bay Area community. In our Center Court segment, we'll hear from spoken word poet and America's Got Talent winner Brandon Lee. In our Beyond the Court segment, we talk with Rue Matt, who is a creator of Outdoor Afro. Outdoor Afro is a nonprofit dedicated to celebrating Black connections in nature as well as leadership in nature conservation and policy. So sit back, relax, and get ready for some knowledge. I'm your host, Mark Spears from ESPN's The Undefeated, and this is Beyond 28. In our next segment, we have the pleasure of talking to spoken word poet Brandon Leak. Leak is a native of Stockton, California, who came into the spotlight by winning the 15th season of America's Got Talent with his spoken word poetry. Leak's poetry focused on pieces about his family. Black Lives Matter, and other social issues. He has performed in 36 states, New Zealand, Mexico, and Canada, with his Dark Side tour to promote his published poetry and his album called Deficiencies, A Tale from My Dark Side. We're going to learn more about how his upbringing in the Bay Area influenced his poetry and how he's using his art for social change. Welcome back to another episode of Beyond 28, and we have Stockton's finest the founder and CEO of Called to Move, Mr. Brandon Leak, man. How you doing today, brother? Uh,
1: blessed to be here. Thank y'all for the opportunity.
0: We're bending your ear to talk poetry, man, and your brilliance in that world. I did want to ask you first, how, how did you get introduced to spoken word? So it was like two real
1: moments. The first moment was just girls were starting to finally look cute in middle school and I couldn't (laughs) sing. So uh, poetry was like my avenue. And then in college, after the passing of one of my best friends, Bernard Daniels, I was playing division two college hoop, but I would always throw my emotions and my pain onto the court. And it seemed like basketball just wasn't managing that issue very well. So I just needed another outlet. And so poetry became that outlet for me. And uh, it just never stopped being that for me.
0: I played Division two ball a little, you know, so I, I understand the same high that you get when you play basketball on a high level, on a college level. I tell people there's no way to duplicate that once you're gone. But I'm guessing that in poetry, when you're doing spoken word, when you got a packed room, perhaps you get the same kind of high when you played basketball or, even, or much greater Tell me what that feeling is like and also where were you the first time in the name of the poem that you did when the first time you did it in front of a crowd and got their reaction?
1: My first moment was actually at a
0: chapel service at my college. They asked me to
1: share a poem and I was like, yeah, sure. I was like so nervous, just blasting through it. But people came up to me afterwards and were telling me like, oh Brandon, you did such a great job, we loved it so much. And so my experience on stage the first time was very similar to my experience on the court first time. I wasn't very good, but I was in love with the process of getting better with it. But in terms of just like my general emotion on stage, as you said, it's a similar high. But just a very different reason behind it. Being a basketball player, you get the chance to be somebody's highlight of the week, like getting the chance to like remove them from their thoughts of issues that are going on and everything that's happening in the world. You can get to be their escape. For me as an artist, I can be that escape or I could be the solution they needed to deal with it. So yeah, same high, just from a different source.
0: What did growing up in Stockton do uh, in terms of influencing your poetry today, or does it?
1: Yeah, it gave me all of my stories. You know what I mean? Like, I grew up out in the southeast side of town, you know, and we know what it's like to grow up in neighborhoods where the closest grocery store is like five, six miles away, but liquor stores and drug stores and alcohol and drugs are all readily available. My past gave me a lot of stories to be able to pull from, from the people who I'd been around and the experiences that I had but it also gave me a lot of victory because I saw so many people come out of that situation and win, such as myself.
0: Who are all the poets you looked up to growing up and who also inspired you?
1: I mean, of course, Langston Hughes and Maya Angelou are poets who, you know, you grow up historically and you learn about. Somebody who wrote in poetic language, who people don't really associate with poetry is Martin Luther King Jr. He was a gifted writer and orator studying people like Tupac for his messaging, not necessarily for like being the greatest lyricist, but for being able to share a story beautifully with a conscious understanding. So those are like the poets who I study.
0: So do you feel like your spoken word and the topics you talk about are unique to the Bay Area or transcend the Bay Area?
1: I think it's both. For instance, I have a poem that very specifically called Six and Nightingale. And so it talks about my very specific neighborhood, like the street corners, names of people, and all this stuff. But I think that people, I think what makes it cool is people can plug and play their own lives into it. They may not be from 6th Nightingale, but they're like, oh no man, I'm like from Grove and 8th out here. I have a Pookie in my house. I I got a Day Day in my neighborhood. I got these types of people who I can plug and play into it. It's very unique to my neighborhood, to my place of origin, because it's, you know, I'm shamelessly carrying it and stating it, but also I think that it's wide-reaching because people can see themselves in whatever story I share.
0: In your work, you tend to talk about social issues such as police brutality as well as Black Lives Matter. What has inspired you to make this a big focus of your work?
1: I mean, there's no denying the fact that it exists, In that, you know, I'm a father to a black boy and a black girl who are going to grow up in this world. And if I don't do my part now, then they're going to have to be subjected to the very same things that I was subjected to. I remember being five years old when I got the talk from my grandma, my mom, and my grandpa about, like, you can't walk around with your hoodie on all the time. Uh, You know, you can't wear these colors. You know, when you're dealing with certain stuff, you got to do twice as much to get half as much. The hard part about it for me was I always just saw people as people until I had to have those conversations. And so if I can if I can contribute to a society where that's no longer the case, then I'm here for it because my children deserve a better
0: world. America's Got Talent, man. 15th season. What made you audition for the show?
1: Because there there was no other show to go to. (laughs) 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 I mean, there's no Deaf Poetry Jam no more. Verses and Flow wasn't happening. And as a singer, you know, you could go to The Voice, you could go to, you know, American Idol, Dancer, you could go to, you know, World of Dance. But Poets, we just got, you know, the local coffee shop. And for me, I was like, hey, I want to see if I could take it somewhere else. So America's Got Talent found a home for me.
0: And you win. What was that emotion like, man?
1: Uh, surreal, because I didn't think I was going to. Like, I knew what, I knew if it was based on talent that I could totally win. But it was also a matter of people voting for it. And the typical demographic for America's Got Talent is like middle America folk. So when I did my poem, Pookie, which talks about police brutality, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm not making it past this round. Definitely eliminated. But I had a good run. <laughs> when I made it past that round, I was like, oh, snap, I could actually win. I have a shot. And so it uh completely shifted things around for me, which was really cool, but still nonetheless shocking.
0: How life-changing has it been since? <sighs>
1: Um, I like to phrase it like this. I haven't changed. My circumstances just have.
0: I'm still the same dude who walks...
1: You know, a couple miles a day with my kids and my family and my dog and my neighborhood still go grocery shopping at the same spots, still doing all the same stuff, still just as hungry and as driven to accomplish my goals as I was before. I just have greater access to do things that I would like to do. Like one of the first things I did after winning was I made a movie uh, entitled Complexity. Uh, It should be coming out uh, this summer around like July or August at like film festivals, which is a narration It's a metaphor around the complex relationship between the black community and the Christian religion displayed through a young black boy whose father gets killed by a police officer. As we know, we're talking about social justice. And then seven years later, he goes to a new church and two rows in front of him. That very police officer is sitting in front of him. And so it's his week long journey of what he'll do come next Sunday. If there's anything that I do want to still do, though with uh, the money and I'm working on it. I'm trying to open up a grocery store in my old neighborhood.
0: Yeah, that's great, man. So they have one that closed in West Oakland, man. I know that crushed the people there. So, hey, man, I believe you'll get it done next time I'm in uh, Stockton. I'm going to have to go get some some bread.
1: Man, I'm telling you, we working on it, brother. It's an old Kmart, like two blocks from where I used to live. Oh, this is a big place. Oh, yeah, it's a large store because I want to turn it into a grocery store and a gym. Because, I mean, you know what it's like. Our neighborhoods aren't always the safest places to just take a stroll and walk through to get exercise. And there's not healthy food around. So it's like diabetes, heart disease, and all this other stuff runs rampant through it. And it's like, cool. So if I could provide a place for healthy food and for people to work out, you won't see an immediate change. But you can see a generational impact of people who are like, oh, I know what it's like to go to the gym because my folks go to the gym. I know what it's like to go buy groceries instead of swinging by McDonald's on the way home, because that's what my folks taught me. And it's about that generational ripple.
0: What kind of inspiration and legacy do you think you're leaving? I'm sure somebody said something to you that periodically or people tap you on the shoulder and let you know what you mean to them. Anything that stands out and what kind of impact do you believe you're having?
1: Yeah. So uh, probably the two most common things are I've heard several people, in particular poets, tell me that, yo, man, you're going to go down as the goat of spoken word. And I'm like, oh, I appreciate that. I'm not there, but I hope to be. Another thing I hear often is, Brandon, man, like you're going to leave a positive imprint on this city forever. Like It'll never be the same because of you. And I hope so. If there was one thing I could have written on my tombstone, it would be, my father was a wonderful dad. I look at my two children, and growing up without a dad, man, nothing brings me more joy than when my children love and know who I am and see me loving what I do. There's nothing better than that. If there was no poems, if there was no, you know, wide-reaching worldwide impact, if I could make those two lives better, it'd be more
0: than enough. Brandon Leak, thank you for coming on Beyond 28, man. It's been a pleasure. Oh, pleasure's all mine. Thank y'all. And now we're going to end this episode with a spoken word poem performed by Brandon Leak entitled Black Boy Joy. Danger.
1: This poem is unapologetically Black, and that can get you killed in a place like this, but this ain't your typical Black poem. This here be Black Boy Joy, the personification of Black excellence, how Black culture persevered and dared to fly across the skies like Lonnie Carman, the first Black pilot in the world, and we still fly today. With heroin in our smiles, cocaine in our laughter, what I'm saying is our joy has been deemed an illegal substance. But no matter what they say, we continue to pervade joyfully, putting our hearts on display, showing the world that an open heart can best mend a broken one the same way the first black open heart surgeon Dr. Williams did. And that is the power of a black man that has found his purpose, but still had to learn to navigate a culture that had always wanted him. But never said dead or alive, but you see, that's not the purpose of this poem, for we are more than our pain, more than our sorrow. We are the symbol of our ancestors' liberation, no longer leasing our joy to these momentary highs. This is about generational restoration, and the greatest form of medication is justice and joy, and both are infectious, so spread it round. Well, the time is now to heal these holes with holistic healing just like Dr. Savy said and the roots of this poem is that understanding that black excellence exists everywhere it is not the exception to the rule but the standard by which we exist and that
0: is beyond 28 Our next guest is Rue Map, who is the founder of Outdoor Afro a nonprofit that is dedicated to connecting the Black community with nature and making a space for Black leaders in nature conservation and policy. Rue, who was a native of Oakland, grew up with a love for nature that was passed on to her by her parents. It was this passion and seeing the lack of Black representation in nature conservation that led her to create Outdoor Afro. going to talk to her about growing up in Oakland and those who came before her who inspired her to work for more inclusion in outdoor recreation and conservation activism. I'm excited about our next guest, Rue Mapp, an Oakland native transformed to Vallejo, but also the founder and CEO of an amazing nonprofit called Outdoor Afro. Rue, welcome to Beyond 28.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I wanted to ask you, uh, growing up in Oakland, did you grow up being amongst the outdoors nature or was it something that your family instilled in you?
2: It was actually both. My parents were from the South and coming from the South, they brought with them their love for the outdoors that included all kinds of activities, hunting, fishing, gardening, exploration. And we got a ranch built about 100 miles north of Oakland. And it was just really my laboratory for exploring the outdoors. And we were there every other weekend and we spent, time during the summer months. What was so special about that place was not only the way that I was able to watch that tadpole turn into a frog in that local creek and ride my bike on country roads or see those beautiful stars at night that I wouldn't see in a light polluted city. It was also a place of hospitality where we welcome people from our family, our extended family, our church. And so I had this front row seat for how important it was for people to experience peace and wonder and healing and connection in nature. And then back home in Oakland, I grew up in the Oakland Hills right there in the Redwoods. Our field trips where I ran cross country in high school were all places very connected to nature. And of course, we had our crown jewel of Oakland, Lake Merritt, that has always been a beautiful and important gathering place that I grew up to understand was The oldest wildlife sanctuary in the country. So we're so blessed, both in Oakland and really California as a whole, to have, no matter where you turn, opportunities to connect to nature close to home. But I will say that my family really instilled in me the values of living in connection with nature as an everyday practice.
0: Were there any um, Black conservation activists that inspired you to get involved in conservation policy and advocacy?
2: That's a great question, because when I think of the definition as I grew to understand it when I got much older of what a conservationist is, I absolutely think about my father and my mother. I mean, when I think about how she would take an old shirt that I outgrown or had holes in it from too much playing and how that shirt would somehow be a part of a quilt that would be used to keep us warm, that's absolutely conservation. When I think about how my dad used every single part of an animal that he harvested through hunting activities, that's conservation. And so when I think about the word conservation, it really is much more broad than the mainstream ideas of it that the environmental movement has presented to us. It's people tucked away right in your own family that I find that can be the most inspirational and who are absolutely living in the practice of conserving and being good stewards of not only land, but also of wildlife.
0: Break down what Outdoor Afro is and what led you to start the nonprofit.
2: You know, Outdoor Afro just started off as a blog back in 2009. I literally sat down at my kitchen table and I had done a lot of outdoor activities over the years. And as I got older, I wanted. To see more people who look like me, who were out in nature, enjoying nature, and didn't feel like I felt at the time, like I was the only one. Back in 2009, there really weren't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of representation of black people in the big glossy magazines of the day. Who were outside with agency, enjoying the outdoors. And so I set out with Outdoor Afro to tell this new narrative and to use what was this new platform called social media Uh, to tell that new narrative and to help shift that visual representation of who we imagine gets outside. And, you know, what was so interesting is that people started reacting to my stories and my photos and my videos, letting me know about their nature story. And that's when I was so clear that we had a representation problem and that Outdoor Afro could be a part of the solution. And so today, we've grown quite a bit since that Kitchen Table blog, and we now have a presence in over 30 states, 56 cities. We have a trained network of leaders who get people outside, totaling over 100, and our participation network is nearly 60,000 people who join Outdoor Afro to hike and bike and camp and do all kinds of things in the outdoors.
0: Well, how do you try to connect Black youth to your organization or introduce them to the outdoors, especially if they live in an environment where there are no lakes, there are no hills, there is no nature nearby?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. There are two ways that Outdoor Afro approaches it. One, we recognize that nature is everywhere. It doesn't matter where you live and it doesn't matter how you access it. So my nature, when I look outside my kitchen window, and I see that blue scrub jay jumping from limb to limb, or I see my lazy pit bull laying in the sun, scratching her back on the grass. When I'm able to take care of the plants in my home, those are connections to nature that we get to celebrate just as much as we can celebrate ascending you know, the highest peaks in our national parks. And so I think we have to change the narrative of where nature is and the realization that we are nature. Like our bodies are comprised of mainly water. Uh, we are affected by lunar cycles. So every breath we take is a participation in nature. And as I think about children, you know, I know that the traditional approach has been about taking the kids from their bad neighborhood and we're going to take them to the woods. And they're going to have some big nature experience that will change their lives forever. And I know from my personal experience, and I know how a lot of black people roll, that it's all about the family. So we are always committed through our work at Outdoor Afro to bring families together so that when folks come together with us, they know that the babies in the arms are welcome as well as grandma. And it's been so rewarding to have that multi-generational reach because I find that there are people, elders in your family, who might surprise you about what they know about the outdoors and nature or may have something uh, sparked in them to be able to take the family out again and again. Sometimes people just need to know where to go. If you think about places like Oakland or any city, especially in California, nature is so close to home so that everybody can have a connection to nature. We just have to change how we think about it, how we talk about it beyond the parks and the playgrounds.
0: Uh, You have a program centered around Black History Month and celebrating key African-American figures that were championed in outdoor and recreation space. Who are some of those figures?
2: Well, in my case, you know, as I mentioned before, it's really about turning inward for outdoor Afro. And Black History Month is every month for Outdoor Afro because we are so focused on the black narrative in America. And as I mentioned before, it's so much about recognizing those folks who we might not have even thought of as environmental leaders. Like, for instance, people don't necessarily even see Martin Luther King in the way that his philosophies and his advocacy came to also include a deliberate care and advocacy to protect the environment. And so one of the things we do with some of the folks who we might remember as part of Black History Month is to highlight and showcase the way that they showed up also for nature and the environment.
0: Yeah, I watched Major League Fishing, which my friends think I'm crazy, but I I think it's amazing.
2: I think it's great.
0: Yeah, and it's actually a pretty interesting competition. And the only mainstay, black mainstay, is a guy named Ish Monroe, a phenomenal fisherman who's always at the top of the leaderboard. So I mentioned him to say, do you think it's also important for youth or even just black people in general that are intrigued by the outdoors or Afro outdoors is, you know, just see people like you involved in it?
2: Absolutely. And that's why the visual representation became such a big part of our work, because you sometimes have to see it to believe it right? You have to see people who look like you to know, wow, if that person can do it, so can I. And there's also this wonderful invitation that people experience when they see someone who looks like them, who are out there living in a way that's strong, beautiful, and free in the outdoors. It's so deeply inspiring. And I've just been so pleased by the way that Outdoor Afro has been successful at shifting that representation of not only the getting outside part, but also the leadership. So today we have so many more leaders and focus groups that are championing and celebrating right alongside Outdoor Afro so that everyone can find their lane in nature.
0: And my last question to you and and Thank you, thank you so much for your time. I need to figure out a way to get to Vallejo to pick your brain some more and bring my fishing pole with me. But uh, <laughs>
2: Absolutely. Well, like I said, I and my fiance, we love fishing. We do, for those interested, you know, you can actually do a charter And go out of the San Francisco Bay, you can go out of Emeryville, you can go out of the Pier 39 area and spend all day fishing with guides who will help you be successful and provide all the gear and equipment. And so there's a lot of ways that if you don't have everything you think you need, that you can find partners like Outdoor Afro and so many others to explore nature on your own terms uh, and in areas that you're interested in.
0: Well, let me ask you this. Your group stewards policy and advocacy around environmental education and health policies that impact Black people and communities' access to and leadership in nature. Could you speak on this and the importance of providing leadership opportunities for Black communities to get involved?
2: Policy was not something that I intentionally chose to develop as part of Outdoor Afro, but it's been a part of Outdoor Afro from almost the very beginning. I'll never forget getting that invitation to the Obama White House in 2010 asking me, a new blogger, to come and join the witnessing of his signing of the historic memorandum to reconnect more Americans to the outdoors. And there were people from all different types of agencies and advocacy groups and outdoor brands. And I was like, wow, like I have found my people. And it was hosted by the Department of Interior, which oversees all of our public lands here in the United States. And it was the spark that really helped me to stay motivated to not only get involved, but to also tell our policymakers that Black people do care about laws that protect our environment. And so what we formed with Outdoor Afro is a committee of folks who are learning together, and who actually do fly-ins and meet our elected officials. And I'll tell you, it's been so rewarding to go to our Congress, to go to our Senate, and to be heard as well as to learn. We have a policy director who's really the most energetic person I've ever met in this space. And she does such a great job of making policy as easy to understand as kitchen table conversation with your auntie. So for us, it's important that we let people know what's going on so that they can make better decisions for themselves and their communities in the voting booth. But also letting other folks know that there's a constituency out here, an influential one, that cares about how our environment is protected and how our quality of life can be sustained no matter where we live.
0: Thank you very much for what you do. Thank you very much for educating black folks. And thank you for extending that offer. I'm going to go fishing with you and your fiance. I'd love that.
2: Oh, we would love that too. Thank you so much, Mark, for having us. And, you know, if you want to keep the conversation going and growing with me or with Outdoor Afro, we are at Outdoor Afro across all the platforms. If you want to follow me and my hunting and fishing adventures, as well as what I might be cooking on the stove as a result, you can follow me at Rue Map with two Ps or Black Heritage Hunt. I'm just really thrilled and grateful to be able to have this forum to talk about how everyone can be better connected to nature. Thank you again.
0: did want to ask you, just so people know when they listen, how many cities in the country and what's the best way to get involved if perhaps you don't have a chapter in your city?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So Outdoor Afro Networks are all around the country. We're in over 30 states and in 56 cities. And those networks can be found going to our website, outdoorafro.com, And if you don't have a leader or a network in your neck of the woods, we invite you to join in to become an Outdoor Afro leader. And you don't have to be an outdoor expert, but we do want people to join us who are passionate about the outdoors and passionate about their communities. And we will train you and support you every step of the way to help you reconnect people right in your own backyard to all the access and the benefits that nature can provide.
0: Ms. Rue Map, thank you for being on Beyond 28.
2: Thank you.
0: That's all the time we have today on Beyond 28. I want to thank our guests today, Rue Map and Brandon Lee. If you like what you heard and haven't already done so, please go to the Beyond 28 page in Apple Podcasts and give us five stars. It makes a huge difference. I'm your host, Mark Spears from ESPN The Undefeated. Thanks for listening